Take your Bible, turn to John 17, as we attempt to finish this massive chapter. So last week we tackled the first five verses, and with proper ambition, we're going to try to finish the chapter. But I am going to start reading in verse 1. This is one unified prayer. And you'll notice the first five verses, uh, Jesus prays for kind of himself. And then six through the end of it, he's going to pray for his people. And particularly once we get to 6 through 26, I'm going to encourage you to tune your ear to listen for what he actually asks for. All right, so as we read this, I want you to kind of zone in, see if you can catch what he's actually asking for in 6 through uh, 26. This is God's Word. It is written for us as well as others. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority, I'm sorry, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me. In your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now, I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my, sorry, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray for ourselves now. Father, we ask that you would speak and that we would listen. We wish to hear from heaven. Even now we've heard Christ's prayer. May we understand it, may we believe it, and may we live differently because of your work in us. We pray for the Spirit that we would not frustrate his efforts, but rather encourage and be participants therein. Give help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination, I should turn my microphone on it, sorry. Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination requires that in order to be ordained as a pastor, as a minister, you must complete an internship. It's required. We've had interns here for a long time before I ever got here. Many of you know Eric Peterson was an intern here. And then intern Allen, well, ex-intern Allen. (laughs) And uh, now Jeremiah and then now Robert. And a large part of the internship is stuff that you guys don't actually get to see. It's the behind the scenes shaping and instructing and teaching so that men are ready when they get into the church uh, to be employed as pastors. They're ready to deal with what comes along. Some of you know, some of you don't. The life of a pastor is a very strange life. The hours are strange, everything's strange, and all of my friends are strange because I hang out with other pastors. We're all strange together. It's just, it's the reality of the world in which we live. But so for Jeremiah, as he has completed his internship here and done a wonderful job, a lot of it, again, behind the scenes, stuff you don't know about, he has excelled. Part of what I was required to do in order to get his internship approved so that he can become a pastor is to report to the presbytery that he has done a satisfactory job as an intern, and he has excelled in every way. But they've wanted me to give more information than simply say he's done a good job. And so they ask questions, and they've kind of pushed back, and I sent them a letter this last week or whatever. But one of the things they've wanted to know is, what does Jeremiah still need to become a pastor? 
Like, what, what is lacking? If we were going to stick him into a church tomorrow, what would be lacking in order for him to be a pastor? What, what does he need? And I understand what they're doing. They're trying to get me to explain exactly who he is and how gifted he is so they know what they're dealing with. And it's been fun. I get to sit in my office and figure out how to say not much in the most excellent of ways that I possibly can. What does Jeremiah need? Nothing really. Leave him alone and let him go do his stuff. The latter part of John 17 here, we get to see Jesus do the exact same thing for his church. As he's preparing to go to the cross, he has a moment of reflection and prayer where he says, what do my people still need? What does Jesus think we need? Now, interestingly, he doesn't give the not much answer. He actually gives a a whole lot is what they still need, which is intriguing because he knows he's going to the cross and he knows it's going to be accomplished. But in verses 16 through 26, we see exactly what Jesus believes we as a church still need. What are we lacking? What does Jesus ask on our behalf? And if you paid attention the way I encouraged you to, you probably noticed in these 20 or so verses where he's praying for us, what does he ask for? And it is a lot, but it's not actually articulated that often. He doesn't pray for specific little things. He prays for a very select few really big things. But that's not the vast majority of the prayer. You remember he started in verses 1 through 5 praying for himself. And his prayer for himself is one that no human else anywhere else could ever pray. And it's restore to me the glory of heaven. He had it before. He laid it aside when he came to earth and stepped inside time and space. And he's praying that he would be able to take it back up. That salvation would be accomplished and he would return to heaven. And in verse 6, he turns to us. He turns to the church and begins to pray for us and contemplate exactly what we need. And so you would expect a prayer request right there, wouldn't you? In verse 6, and is there one in verse 6? Well, no, there's not. And how about verse 7? Well, again, no, no, there, no, there's not. Verse 8, oh, it's probably, no, it's not. 9, no, 10, no, 11, no. Oh, you start getting 12, he starts asking for things in 12. And the part of it is because he explains at the very beginning, even in his prayer, telling to the Father what the Father already knows, he explains the interesting and intimate relationship that God has with his people. His whole prayer for his people is based upon the uniqueness and the intimacy that he has with them. An illustration might make it a little clearer as we begin to this, uh, get to this part is it's my relationship with spanking children or disciplining children or getting them in trouble. I can, in essence, spank or discipline my children because they're mine. I, however, cannot spank your children because that would be weird. 
They're yours. They belong to you. That's your responsibility to spank or to discipline or correct or stand them in the corner, whatever discipline method you take. That's your privilege because they belong to you. Jesus begins his entire prayer for his people with one simple paragraph concept to say, this whole prayer falls within one primary theme, and that is your church belongs to you, Father. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. What an interesting way to talk about the church, the people whom you gave me. And what Jesus is doing here is he's actually explaining to the disciples a conversation that happened prior to creation. So prior to God speaking light and dark, prior to God speaking, oh, and the stars, prior to God speaking the armadillos into existence, prior to God creating moles and mosquitoes, there's a conversation that takes place, and a conversation that takes place with the only people that are alive, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And these three persons have a conversation, and it's called the covenant of redemption, the plan of redemption, where God himself agrees on salvation. And part of that agreement, part of that plan, is that the Father chooses for himself a group of people. They belong to him. They are his and his alone. And as a present to his son, he gives those people to his son and says, these are mine. Go protect them. Go teach them. But ultimately, go redeem them. And the way you're going to redeem is you're going to die on the cross. This is prior to creation ever happening. The way you're going to redeem is you're going to die on the cross on their behalf. They're going to murder you. And then after you're murdered, you're going to be raised from the dead. You're going to live on earth for a time. You're going to ascend into heaven. And then spirit, you're going to go and you're going to apply everything that Jesus has done. And when that's all finished, those people that Jesus has redeemed and the spirit has perfected, all of those will be given back to the Father. Jesus begins his prayer for us with this glimpse into this conversation that took place prior to creation. Father, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You gave me these people. Yours they were. They belong to you. They're they're your thing. You gave them to me. And they've kept your word. They've believed in you. They've come to know who Jesus is. They believe in Christ Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. Again, recognizing this relationship and that Christ has given them the words that they need to believe. So Christ has explained the gospel. He's explained the truth of who God is and what salvation is. In the latter part of verse 8, they believe that you sent me. And then verse 9, Jesus again explains, he highlights the intimacy of this connection. I'm praying for them. These ones that you gave to me, those are the ones that I pray for. I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for those that don't belong to me. I'm not praying for those that that aren't part of my people, aren't part of your people. I'm praying for us, for the church, for the saints, past, present, and future. In verse 10, he just mashes it all together. 
All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them, in your people, in the church. But even in the midst of this intimacy, in the midst of this relationship of the Father giving the people to the Son, the Son dying to save them, the Spirit perfecting them, and then being presented back to the Father, you realize that's actually part of what Judgment Day is. Right? If you don't, maybe, not, maybe you haven't put that kind of two and two together. That's part of, a substantial part of what Judgment Day is, is where the Son and the Spirit get to present us as finished products to the, the Father. <coughs> Father, you gave them to us. Look, we've been faithful to our calling. Look at what you get back. Better than the Garden of Eden. Far better than that. Far better than they were even after redemption. These are perfect people presented to you. Uh, That's part of what the new heavens and new earth are, which is so exciting. But Jesus recognizes in verse 11 that he's getting ready to leave. Uh, He's going to the cross and then ultimately even to be ascended into heaven. And now they need something. Holy Father, this is 11b, keep them. In your name, keep them. I I think it's it's such a tender prayer that Christ has for his saints keep them. Why? Well, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. I was the one that was watching over them. I was the one that was protecting them. I was the one that was guarding them. I was keeping them. They were mine and I was watching over them, but I'm leaving and I'm not going to be with them and they still need that care. And again, this is a, a, an illustration that would make sense in a far more agrarian society than ours where you would have cows or sheep or some sort of critters where you wouldn't just turn your animals loose and not watch where they go. Because even the best of animals will get themselves in trouble. They'll eat things they shouldn't eat. They'll find you know, enemies they shouldn't find. They will uh, get themselves into dangerous terrain. You, you have to keep them and protect them and watch them and guard them. And now, interestingly, Jesus here says to the Father the same thing. Look, I've been doing my job while I'm here, and I need you to now keep them. Which is fantastic, because this is a prayer request that we actually get to see answered in just a few short weeks. Pentecost. Where the Father does accomplish that. Look, I'm actually going to keep them, and I'm going to keep them even better than you were, Jesus. Because you are external to them, watching over them and guarding them and keeping them as a Messiah in flesh outside of them. Instead, I'm going to send my spirit inside of them. So now, instead of having this Messiah that is apart from them, speaking to them and teaching them, now you have a spirit residing within them. Transforming reshaping, educating, making the scriptures come to life. In fact, actually, I know this is maybe strange for you to think about, but I'm preaching with the goal that the Spirit uses the word. Meaning, in fact, actually, my my primary audience isn't actually you. My primary audience is the Spirit within you in hopes that my explanation and application of the word he uses in your life. I I can't change you. I can't reach you. I can't work on you. Only the Spirit can. So I'm preaching for him as my audience, that he'll use it, that he'll apply it, that he will work in you, because I can't. 
So Christ begins his prayer with this intimate, keep them. Verse 12, the second half here, B, I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except for Judas, the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So I've watched over my disciples. Uh, Eleven of them are here. The only one of the eleven that's been lost is the one that was prophesied to do so. That's to be expected. Uh, That was the way it was planned all along. Uh, 13, but now I'm coming to you. I'm leaving. And these things I speak in the world, and they're going to have joy because of that, but the world is going to hate them. 14, the world's hated them because they're not of this world, just as I'm not. We belong in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. We're not created. We don't have the DNA of this place. And that's an interesting thing to ponder. Part of the reason why we need the Spirit to keep us, why we need God to guard us, is because we do not belong here. Because we weren't created for this. This, isn't, this is not our people. This is not our land. This is not our home. This is not what we resonate with. This is not us. But we still need to be guarded. And we need to be kept. I think Jesus here is obviously connecting and explaining and praying correctly. Obviously, he's Christ. He does everything correctly. But recognizing the frailty of humanity, even redeemed humanity, is to think about that we have been transformed. If you are a saint of God, you have been made new. If you are a saint of God, your your old heart has been taken away and you've got a new one inside you. Your internal disposition has been completely changed. And yet, even in that internal disposition being changed, we still do evil things. And we still live in a world in which the conflict and the danger and the struggles are real, in which combat is the norm. It's one of the languages that Paul picks up the most. One of the illustrations is that of combat. He thinks of, really, he thinks of the Christian walk in a number of ways, but he thinks of it as one, a competition where you're, you're sacrificing everything to succeed, and then combat where everything's out to get you. <laughs> the world, the devil, even your flesh. And so we need to be protected. I might suggest if we watch what's happening in the church today, you get to watch the American church kind of, I would lovingly say, have a a bit of a panic attack over what's taking place in the larger American culture. And we're watching things happen and watching the political spectrum um, operate in all of its diversity and breadth and everything. And the church, by and large right now, I think is having a little bit of a, we'll say freak out, we'll put it delicately. And I suggest that part of the reason why the American church is having such an emotionally difficult time with it is because I think for a large part of the last maybe 100 years, we've forgotten that we needed to be protected. We've forgotten that the enemies are everywhere. That the world, enemy, the devil, enemy, and even our flesh, the very inside of our composition is not on the same side. 
And this is one of those great downfalls of the culture of nice that so many of us were raised in, is that when everyone's raised to be nice, it, you forget that the boundary lines are sharp and real and divided. I read an article this morning, actually, from a very, very liberal newspaper, politically and theologically. They actually do a lot of religion stuff, but it was an article uh, looking kind of at the American church and saying, what's going to happen at the American church? The, the political unrest that's happening right now, the spiritual unrest that's happening right now, what's going to happen to the American church? And it's interesting, this liberal article was saying, the American church right now is on the turning point of reaching its heyday because people will finally learn to be nice. I was like, oh, you totally missed the point, man. I would not want to go to your church. It was a pastor who wrote it. I'm like, you totally missed the point. The point is the, the American church is finally at the turning point of realizing that, no, everybody's not on the same side and we never have been. And that's the right thing to say. It's not evil to acknowledge the differences. In fact, that's exactly how Jesus begins his prayer. Why do God's people need to be kept? Because they belong to him and everybody else doesn't. That's why they need to be kept. Why do I need to watch out for my children? Because they belong to me and they don't belong to anybody else. And if I were to go to Carowinds, you know, Monday afternoon and there's a trillion people there, no one else is going to watch out for my children. I'm going to because they belong to me. (coughs) Jesus doesn't stop there, though. Recognizing that we need to be kept, we need to be guarded, we need to be protected, but he continues on as to what that exactly kind of means and gives fuller definition to it. Verse 14, I've given them your word. Worlds hated them because of it. Yep. Uh, They hate because I'm not of this world, neither are they. 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. That's an interesting prayer request. I mean, that could happen. Like, you get converted, and the second you get converted, you just die. You drop dead. I mean, it would be beneficial for you because you go straight to heaven. No, no, no. I'm not asking that they be taken out of the world. Um, But that you keep them from the evil one. Again, this protection. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Again, redundant. Verse 17, here's your, your next kind of major request. Sanctify them. Sanctify them in the truth, and your word is truth. Now, sanctify is a word that we don't use that frequently. Uh, I mean, in church language we do, but nowhere else. And it's the verb form of holy. Uh, I lovingly like to say it's holify. It's probably the, I mean, that would be the more English accurate translation is it's verb form of holify, uh, of holy, to, to be holified, to be made holy. But then that doesn't really help us that much either because holy doesn't mean a whole lot today. I mean, we don't, really know what that word means? I mean, if I asked you to define it, we'd come up with a definition, but it probably wouldn't entirely be the most accurate and certainly wouldn't be the most good. But it means ultimately kind of set apart. It means different. It means unique and not like a strange kind of different where you have, you know, everybody's got that uncle that's a little different. Not that kind of different. I mean like just completely other. When it says that God is holy, 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 it means he is completely unlike us, other, completely, he's just foreign, he's different, he's unique. 
So what Jesus then prays for them is to say, look, these people that belong to the Father, they've been given to me. I'm praying that the Father will keep them. He's going to guard them and protect them. But specifically for what purpose is so that they will be made holy from the world. He gives a purpose for our protection. It's not just protect them so that they're not dumb. Which, I mean, honestly, I I pray that for my children and myself with great regularity. But he's saying protect them specifically. Why? So that they will become holy. Totally different from the world. And he explicitly kind of frames it within. Look, he's talking about the world, the verses before. And what does he say? Verse 18, you sent me into the world. So I send them into the world. Why? So they're going to be different. This is one of those things that I, it always kind of boggles my mind how so many church historians miss this. But the church has always been at her best. And revival has always taken place in settings where the church is other than the culture and not like it. And we constantly see throughout church history, the church has been like, well, we need to be relevant to the culture. We need to be able to reach the culture. We need to be. And it's interesting. You know what happens? The church becomes the culture and dies every single time. It's the places where the church is different, where it's being sanctified, where it sticks out, where there's actually a noticeable contrast between those in it and those out. Christ's prayer is that we would be sanctified, that we would be made holy, that we would be different. There's a guy named Mark Dever. He pastors a uh, Baptist pastor in, uh, I think he's in Washington, D.C., out of all places. And he runs a ministry called Nine Marks, and it's like nine marks of a healthy church. If you want to have a healthy church, what are these kind of nine marks that you need to have? And most of them are kind of obvious, and you would get, no, of course, well, of course, well, of course. But it's interesting, one of them, <laughs> he says, uh, you need to be very rigid in your membership. You want to have the nine marks of a healthy church, one of them is you have rigid membership. That you, you draw clear lines between who's in and who's out. Here's a guy pastoring a massive church in Washington, D.C., of all places, saying, no, you need to have clear delineation who's in the church and who's out of the church. Because this sanctification, this holiness, it's, it's not just being good. That is part of it. It's not just not doing evil. That is part of it. But it is being quantitatively and qualitatively just different. You know, when you do your uh, every maybe fourth year where you feel guilty because you don't read the Bible and you start reading the Bible at the beginning and you read through Genesis and it's interesting and you get into Exodus and you're like, well, it's still kind of somewhat interesting when the ground eats people and things. And then you get into the next three books and you're like, it's no longer interesting. (laughs) Those books, part of why we don't find them interesting is because the primary purpose of those next three books is to explain how Israel is supposed to be different. Those books are saying, look, the world is living in all of these ways. I want you to live that way. Totally different. Now, Jesus here explains it. Sanctify them. Make them different. How? In the truth. And your word is the truth. So you want to grow. I mean, I get that question. Michael, how do I grow? I want to grow spiritually. Well, Jesus tells us right here. (laughs) Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If you want to grow as a Christian, you cannot do it if you're not in the word. 
It just can't happen. I'm sorry. If you're not in the Bible, you can't grow. I mean, you might grow for a day or two. I mean, little, tiny, little, mini baby steps. You've got to be in the Bible. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, okay, so they need to be kept because they're mine and they're different from the world. Okay, sanctify them. They need to be different from the world. Not only are they not belonging there, but they're going to live differently. They're going to look differently. Well, what do they need then? What does the church need? If it's going to be guarded and kept, if it's going to look differently than the world, what does the church actually need? And it makes total sense. What's the biggest thing they need is they need to figure out how to get along together as Christians. Because if everyone else hates them, they better figure out how to get along because there's no one else left for them to talk to. 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me throughout the word. So those just going to come after the disciples. What? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So we, Trinitarian, uh, unity and diversity, diversity and unity, that the church may look like the Trinity. This does not mean that Jesus is praying that there would be no denominations. Right? And that's not at all what he's saying. In fact, actually, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, I'll read it in hopefully two minutes if I can go faster. But uh, Jesus, I mean, Paul's going to tell us denominations are a good thing. Jesus is here meaning that the body will be knit together in their content. Uh, They will be united and joined around the the reality of who Christ is and the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the body will be built together. The way that this body operates together as a family is one of our primary testimonies to those people out there that do not know Christ. Christ. So that when people walk through these doors, I want them to say, man, you people are weird and there's something really strange there. And I think I might like it. I'm not sure. In fact, actually, I think I might really like that a lot. That's exactly what we want, because that's what Jesus is talking about. That, yes, people are going to notice the church is completely strange. And that's okay. Because even in the midst of that, they love one another, support one another, affirm one another, encourage one another. That the body would be together. And then one last thing, finally, that he kind of concludes with here. Verse 24, he builds all of it kind of to the climax of his prayer. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me in this church may be with me where I am. Well, it's kind of strange because they're right in front of him when he's praying this. What does he mean? Be where I am. Oh, for what purpose? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So now Jesus is talking actually about after the resurrection and ascension. He's assuming that redemption has already taken place. I love this. He's so confident. He's he's talking past tense. Cross has already happened. He knows it's going to happen. But what's this prayer request? So that all of these things build to something. Why do we need to be guarded and kept? Why do we need to be sanctified? Why do we need to be united as a body? Why? So that we may be brought into his presence. You see, that's ultimately the design of redemption is, one, so that we may know him a little bit now, but so that we might know him a lot bit later. 
I mean, a little bit we know God now. I mean, it's, but that little bit becomes a lot bit after we die. And Paul talked about that in Romans 8, you know, the, the hope. We have hope now. When you die, you have no hope because it's sight. You don't have to hope in things that you see in front of you. That's Paul's point in Romans 8. You hope in things you can't see. Like, I hope gravity continues working and I don't fly off into space. I can't see it. I don't know if it's going to I hope so. I don't hope that Robert's sitting there. I can see Robert. I know he's sitting there. The same way that I hope that God will take care of me now. I trust his promises. But in heaven, I don't hope for that because I see him. I know it will have taken place. Jesus here builds his prayer to this unity of God and his people that we would be in his presence, that we would know him and love him and be with him. That we would know the Lord and love him. The people of God, I, I would say... It's important for us to understand that we just got a glimpse into what kind of Jesus is doing my resume for Jeremiah. What does the church need? What is the church lacking? What does the church still kind of need until glory? Well, they need to be guarded and kept. They need to be sanctified. They need to be unified. And they need to be in the presence of God. And I might just encourage you to contemplate. When you sit down and think about your needs... How well do they align with what Jesus thinks your needs are? I mean, how many of us think about, uh, well, I have these material needs, or I need this, or I, you know, I need so-and-so to stop treating me so crummily, I need such-and-such, such. I need... How many of our prayers actually match what Christ's are? I mean, honestly, how many of you spent this week thinking about, I, I desperately need to be sanctified. I, I need to be greater in the presence of God. And I might lovingly, as your pastor, just say, you really need to consider how well your prayers align with Christ's and maybe change your prayers. Because he's right. And he knows exactly what we need, for he is our Savior. We belong to him. Let us then pray, even now, in response to this. Father, thank you that we get to see Christ's prayer here. And thank you that while we belong to him, he knows us. He loves us. He knows our needs. And Father, we do ask for these things. We ask that you would guard and keep us. We ask that you would sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. We ask that you would unify the body of Christ, and we ask that you would take us into your presence. And Father, we ask even now, especially that you would take us into your presence with the table, with the supper. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.